John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1170.IS3501, certificate number 33204, Slab City. It has been one year that you and I have been living in the yurt and doing this uh, Canadian adventure. Yeah, it's crazy to think, just one year. <laughs> How many people, when they first heard of watching us, when they first heard that we were going to do this, uh, living off the grid, they... Uh, trolled us big time and doubted us and said we wouldn't last a week. Yeah, they, a lot of people did. And a lot of people said that our yurt wasn't going to stay standing, but boom, <laughs> it's up. He said that with a lot of panache. Did Slab I? Slab City. What's the correct way to say Slab That's, City? I think just exactly like that. I want to fit in there, but I don't know what it is. It sounded like you were about to draw your gun, actually. Slab <laughs> City. Hee <laughs> hee. Uh, I think of you, Ken, as being someone who's fairly on the grid. I'm extremely on the grid. You're on grid. Uh, on a scale of one to a hundred. Uh huh. Um, I mean, if I'm looking at my phone like thirty times an hour, pretty on grid. That's uh, how much more on the grid could you be? You have a smart thermostat too. Not to not to violate your infosec. <laughs> Do, nobody try and hack Ken's smart thermostat. I don't thermostat. have a I don't have a smart doorbell, so you can't. Right. You, you, there's no cameras you could hack. But they could turn your heat up. <laughs> or turn it off. <laughs> That's the worst they could do. <laughs> beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep. I've now given the future power to make me put on a sweater, and I'm not happy about it. Have you ever had any desire to live off the grid? Are you compelled by those stories like Into the Wild or uh, mm, that impulse? No. I don't even understand it. I mean, I understand the, uh, the desire to be surrounded by maybe a beautiful wilderness setting and yeah. solitude. Yeah. But, you know, there's ways to get that at, at like, an, uh, you know, everything from a nice day spa to a to a shabby motel without going uh what a survivalist but are you afraid that the that our that our modern technology is a kind of tenuous foothold and that it could all go away as a result of some collapse of civilization. Yes, but in that case, you're going to be grateful for every hour you spent <laughs> with a hot shower and fast Wi-Fi. With, with the lights on. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, nobody's going to be like, man, I'm so glad I was like, I was wandering around uh, Alaska because it really prepared me for the zombies. For, for when I actually had to do it? Do yeah. You, do you have, uh, do you have well, any in, your, in the back of your mind, any... Any um, 
what contingency plan for like what happens if the lights go out and don't come back on? Uh, no, like I'm really hoping that they stay on. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, that would be ideal. Uh-huh. Is if civilization didn't end, right? At some point, it's going to end, and my plan is just to be at the epicenter of that, so I don't have to worry about the rubble. Oh, you're someone that wants the nuke to land on his head. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean. It doesn't have to, yeah, on my head would be fine. Uh-huh. Gonna, right. A few feet to the left or right. You're going to slim pickens it. What would you, <laughs> I don't want to be on top of the nuke. What's the name of the guy that slim pickens the unknown Russian that he probably lands on? We yeah, don't know. Right. Ivan. Right, Ivan. What, what, what do you think the appeal is of people who want to go off the grid? You really, you think it's something about, about coming calamity? I just assumed they felt that technology was alienating or... I mean, really, it's mental illness, but how does it manifest? All, all of the different ways. I mean, there are people that feel like um, like technology is, uh, I mean, the tinfoil hats think that 5G is giving them coronavirus. There are the people that are more philosophical and less bonkers who feel like modern- It's alienating. Yeah, modern technology has, has taken away their humanity. And I agree 100% with that, but I feel like the remedies would be more like, um, you know, Go play uh, Stratego with your kids. Right. L- look not, at your phone less. Yeah. Not like move to the Sierra Nevada. There are people that feel like modern technology, and I, I think this is fairly commonplace, comes with um, obligations that end up being shackles on one's freedom. So that if you're living in a society, you're obligated to also have insurance on your car and you're obligated also, I mean, you're obligated to pay your bills and pay bills and taxes that you. So this is a libertarian argument against just this kind of casual tyranny that you and I don't even think about because we're actually not weirdos and we're good citizens. Yeah. But the, but the kind of, um, I mean, to pay your taxes is something that, that, uh, is, is actually, I find hard to argue with, but, but to be obligated to pay insurance, uh, that isn't, you know, that isn't just liability, but is, you know, to be to be caught in a web where in order to maintain your good citizenship, you have to be, you have to maintain, for instance, a credit rating. And a credit rating uh, sort of, uh, you become beholden to systems of uh, banking and credit. You're, I mean, you're... I didn't vote for those sim- systems, John. Yeah, that's right. And those systems tend to be corrosive. Um, you can fall out the bottom end of it for reasons that feel beyond your control, a divorce, um, the loss of a job, illness. Uh, all of a sudden you've got, you've got, uh, alimony and child support payments that, um, you're not able to meet and then you're in Dutch and then you lose your credit and then you can't get, or you're a felon. This seems very specific. This, uh, is, th- this <laughs> is a country Western song. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's, it's, it's specific, but also kind of generally true of a population of people that... Um, I wonder if it's a kind of privilege I have where I'm far enough away from whatever the desperation Mendoza line is on all these axes that I don't have to think about it. It's, it is, actually. Um, and, it's, I, and I don't mean that... Uh, chast- Can. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Thank you for finally admit- addressing it. But, you know, we, we think of, um, of the homeless crisis in the United States right now as... Uh, as being deep enough to start to cut into the populations of people that 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 are actually working class people who, under normal circumstances, where they would not be sleeping in their cars, yeah, where civilization had not become 
kind of uh, usurious mm-hmm. uh, that they would be able to afford a home on on their salary and they would be able to not fall into medical debt uh, and other forms of debt where they're excluded from you know they're they're pushed out the bottom yeah uh, and it's not a failure to it's not a failure of work ethic it's not a failure of ability it's just a it's, it's systemic just, yeah and it's a tidal wave of of conditions where each one of the conditions alone wouldn't be sufficient, but it's easy to see how they become, uh, you know, self-perpetuating. Yeah, and I guess a lot of these systems arose in a time when these problems were less severe. You know, the things you're referring to, credit rating and insurance. You know, a lot of these webs came up in a time when they did not push a huge group of Americans out the bottom until a lot of the economic assumptions changed right and a lot of the the inequality numbers changed and suddenly now these systems that maybe made sense in a world where they were not uh overwhelming and usurious now now it's the math is very different for what's well, got to be hundreds of thousands of people yeah right there were uh, 25 years ago uh, if you had a workplace injury or you had a a car accident or you incurred some some uh, some medical bills, they generally wouldn't be sufficient to cause you to default on your home loan and end up living in your car. But that isn't that isn't the case now. And it's not all uh, kind of economic indicators about income either. I mean, it, since you mentioned the homelessness problem, there were also, there was also a time in living memory for you and me where social safety nets right. w- were sufficient, and so these things did not become, you know, mental health did not lead to a, a homelessness crisis, right? And that's all different. So the the I think that there has always been a libertarian desire to live um, in a place where you don't have these these eels of um, of creditors and uh, all the all the preconditions that, that that you have to have in place just to be a functioning member of society. They're eels? Uh, I think of them as eels, as remoras. I thought you were saying they were ills. No. And you were just, uh, now you're in Eagle Montoya. Eels. They are the eels of society. No, they're literal eels sucking, I, sucking at you. I do think of them as, uh, as being uh, uh, parasites. Uh, when I was in my 20s and was still... A, uh, a a drug user. I went through a period where um, I lost my ID uh, in a in a kerfluffle, and, and you didn't even have the old fake one for when you were. I didn't have the fake one. All those things were lost, and I didn't have um, what you would describe as a place of residence. And I went for about a year where I had no ID and no permanent domicile. What's it like? Well, not great, but, um, but you know, I was in my twenties. They're, they're not going to ask you to blurb homelessness. <laughs> if you keep saying things like not great, John Roderick, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have regular work. I didn't have a place to live and I didn't have uh, money or an I, or ID. I, I, I wouldn't describe myself as, uh, homeless because I have always, I've always thought of that term as being fairly loaded, right? I mean, I was between 
between places. You could say unhoused. I mean, whatever. It's the kind of thing where whatever term you use will become the new pejorative term. Right. It's a bummer. Uh, but at the time, you know, I wouldn't. Have, I would have said like, "Oh, I'm just between places," and it just continued to. I continue to be pl- between places for a long time. But what I what I realized was, without an ID, without and 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 it's different now that everything's computerized. And at the time, it was just a laminated piece of plastic with a with a photo map picture in it. But without an ID, I was excluded from a lot of places. Right, any place that that serves alcohol, I couldn't get into, even at, at 26 years old. Did you feel like a non-person? In a way. Um, when when I was questioned by the police, I could always establish my identity by, you know, offering, I had a social security yeah. number. Uh, but I, in that world, I encountered a lot of people that hadn't had ID for a long time. And- um, but, but they were more into it? No, they were just older and had been and had gone from being between places to being kind of between worlds. Um, they're living in the city, but they're not part of what we think of as the as the machinery of the city. I mean, they're living in a, really in a separate city, and we think of the homeless, I guess, as a as a kind of monolithic population of people who are all. Uh, homeless against their will and there because, you know, the system has failed them. But of course, there are a lot of people living in the city who don't want your social services and who don't, who didn't, uh, who did fall out the bottom, but not because they were working hard at their factory job and encountered some medical problems. They fell out the bottom because they didn't want to be part of your world. Um and yet our civilization or our society is now urban enough that they're kind of forced to be in these large urban centers for the most part, or at least they are kind of drawn there by different kinds of magnetism. Yeah, they want to be there. Often that's where, I mean, often they're collecting some kind of government um, like subsidy so that they have to be near enough to, I mean, they have to get their mail somewhere, right? But in some ways it's the it's the kind of place least suited to their desire to be off the grid. I mean, they're, they're, it's a place with a high population density. I mean, specifically, they're going to run into the problem of it being a place where real estate is scarce and expensive. So no matter where they try to to make their place, you're going to have what we see in Seattle, neighbors saying, but this is a nice park. Right, you know, How can right. I take my kids if there's now tents under the trees over there? There's going to be competing interests in every space, different kinds of scarcities. It's a, it's a, it, often it's a question of how you focus your eyes, because if you go around Seattle and focus your eyes in such a way that you become aware of the different, um, the different cities within a city, you'll see that this, uh, that this other network is all around you. It isn't, you know, we, we become aware of it when a tent city pops up in a, in a nice park and mm-hmm. a neighbor starts to complain. But really, everywhere you look, there are people living one foot in the grid and one foot out, and a lot of people with both feet firmly out of the grid who are sharing our space, sharing our, um, you know, taking part of the resources of the city. And there's there's a lot of there, well, a lot of stuff falls out the bottom of a city that can be scavenged and can mm-hmm. be repurposed. Uh, there's a lot of money in the city. And I try not to ignore them because I feel like that's the most corrosive thing at all. Just, um, you know, I've got it as a city dweller, as a trained uh, urban person, I need to treat 
this whole stratum of civil as, as society as like non-entities. Right. After all, they don't exist. They don't have any of the kind of rights and courtesies that I extend to human beings. Um, but you have to push, you have to make, uh, you have to make an effort. I think I find that just, you know, even making eye contact and being friendly and um, the urge is to feel uncomfortable and avoid that other, that second world, that second network. Well, and I think one, one of the things that's interesting about, you know, living in the above ground world, let's say um, uh, people in other uh, pe- people that are living in the city, but not in the city. Um, they're not especially often interested in your eye contact. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there, there's a tendency, f- those of us who, who are in the city to, to just, I think, understandably feel a certain amount of condescension or a certain amount of responsibility or privilege. It must be just dispiriting though. I would think to have nobody look at you. No? Well, maybe, um, maybe, if, maybe for some people that's what they want. Unless it's, you know, unless you really are living in a world where uh, the normies are the ones in black and white. We're the ghosts. Yeah. And, um, you know, the ghosts that are moving at a different speed and failing to see, really, uh, failing to see what cities really are. Living between, you know, parking garages and air-conditioned office buildings and not really appreciating the environment. And the, the the problem is that there are a lot of groups that are advocates for homeless people, for addicted people, for mentally ill people. And those groups o- often have a vested interest in portraying those different populations of people as needy because, because their mandate is to... That's what gets donations. That's right. And Let me emphasize that a lot of these are families with kids. That's right. And, and those groups... Uh, well-meaning and pro- and providing incredible, you know, resources and services to people that for need that it. segment of the population. Yeah. But it's 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 hard even for those uh, organizations that 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 are well aware there are a lot of people in the community that don't want their help. Um, it's very hard for them to acknowledge that population because it kind of undercuts the the fundraising argument, and it also plays into um, a, a sort of socially conservative belief that the homeless just aren't, they're just lazy or they don't, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to work. They just want to sit around and drink. How far are you going to the other way? Are you going to, are you going to tell me it's, it's kind of a a net good for a society to have, to have this kind of population? I mean, you're you're speaking kind of uh, admiringly of them, not as if this is a, a kind of blight that our cities need to fix, but just kind of a side effect of being a city. Well, it is, I, it is a side effect of a, um, of just uh, any kind of spectrum of, I mean, there are people, there are people who live in a city whose feet never touch the ground. And, uh, and there are inevitably going to be people in the city who die, who freeze to death, um, in the winter. And, Within that spectrum, there are a lot of different worlds, a lot of different universes, and and we we I think make the mistake of thinking of these different populations as monolithic, right? That all the rich yeah. uh, have no fear, and all the poor are uh, noble and needy. Um, I speak of them. I speak of this particular group of people admiringly because I because I spent my youth kind of. Um, 
adjacent to it. I never felt like I fell completely out of the bottom of the world, right? I mean, not having ID, I still... You still had connections yeah, and I still a could, lifeline. I could put a quarter in a phone booth and call someone. Um, during that whole period of time, although I slept outside in the city a lot, I also was welcome in people's homes. You know, I wasn't... Um, the. There were bars that knew me on site that didn't check my ID. I mean, I wasn't excluded from certain bars. You were couch surfing as much as you were. Yeah, that's right. More than you were under bridges. And they weren't, I mean, you know, the bars that I went to weren't in hotels, let's say. But, but, you know, I still was part of a community that was somewhat above ground. Uh, in, In between, in between light and dark. But I got to, and maybe it's partly that, that, that my nature d- does um, does lead me to gravitate sometimes to feel like the remora that are on me. Uh, in order to shake them off, I can't. Uh, half measures won't suffice. That I need to make a clean break, and um, and that clean break has a couple of times in my life caused me to abandon everything. And, and, um, go through periods of where, you know, where I have no resources and sort of put a, put a life back together afterwards. But that was when I was in my twenties and thirties and had an awful lot of life force. Uh, that does seem like really the, yeah, the only age you want to be messing about with that. Yeah. Now in my fifties, the prospect of sleeping outside in the city, uh, not just as a lark, but, to to you know to venture out one day uh, from the the apartment I'm losing just for some kind of clarity. Well, just I mean, no. At the time, it was just like I don't need to pay rent. Like the there's manna flowing in the streets. Um, I don't feel that way now, and wouldn't want to. I if you said if you dared me to go sleep downtown for a couple of nights, I would take the dare. That's a pretty big if. I'm not going to do. But that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go downtown with no, with the idea that I'd, you know, I didn't have anyone to call, but there are a lot of people my age and older who just in the course of living their lives find that they get to be retirement age and don't quite have enough to get by. Um, they have a pension, they have, government benefits. These are not um, people you're talking about who have some some previous life experience of uh, homelessness or living off the grid. These are just kind of normal people that were always on the edge. Yeah, uh, not, not people habitually homeless, although although some people in that category. It comes and goes. But people that have lived uh, productive lives but arrive at 65 years old and retire from their jobs and just aren't able to live in Phoenix anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, speaking of social safety nets. And not not able to live in Phoenix and kind of um, uh, more adjusted to the idea that self-reliance is... Um, I mean, self-reliance plays such a big part in the American identity that we are... Um, we're free. And we con- we used to contrast our freedom to people that lived in other countries that were authoritarian or were uh, 
lived in cultures that were governed by monolithic churches or or uh, oppressive ancient cultures. And in America, you could really you could set your you know set sail by your own stars. And that's kind of morphed into a, a new vision of America where we're now free from any kind of communitarian uh, belonging or obligation or connection. Right. Which is an unfortunate attitude to adopt when you're living in Phoenix or Atlanta or any city where it is a, it, you really are living in a hive. It is a communal, uh, undertaking just to live in a city. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that, um, it's a communal undertaking. Sure. Like you're putting on a potlatch. No, but it mediates, uh, hundreds of moments of your day. That's right. That's right. Every time you stop at the crosswalk, every time you go to the, uh, to the coffee shop, like it's, you're part of an organism mm-hmm. and for people to, to have taken that self-reliance mentality and tried to wear it as a cloak within a completely independent framework where what they're doing is just denying that they're getting all this help. Don't you think car ownership was a big part of it? What if you could move through cities, but you were just cloaked by a half ton of, of Detroit steel, you know, you yeah. have your, you kind of have your own little pod. It's a weird way to experience cities. that's never existed before in any human era. Yeah. And I, you feel and like I think you're it's really, steering. And, yeah. Yeah. I've got a sense of entitlement. I can, this place is crowded, but I can move through it cleanly and quietly with the soundtrack of my choice. Well, and also your only experience of government from within a car for the most part is that it is. Uh, it's government that's telling you when to stop and go. And you can get resentful of that, right? You can, sure. as you're driving around. This light around, is timed wrong. The light is timed wrong. These streets are bad. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, people driving on the streets is their, is the main way they interact with a municipality. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of feel like everything would be okay. Like, look how right. good things are going for me in this car, except that the city keeps putting potholes in my way. Right. Like the idea that there has actually been some kind of shared space that they are opting out of seems to have escaped them. So Ken, I'm always searching online, uh, researching omnibus topics. And sometimes, like in the case of our recent Beaver Castorium episode, which won't air for many weeks, (laughs) uh, I, I found myself searching all kinds of things that I wouldn't want to show up in my browser history. Like you don't want the government to know how many times you typed anal gland into yeah, your search engine. That's right. I mean, once or twice, sure, you're doing research for a, for a project, but uh, it keeps coming up if you follow the, if you follow anal gland down that anal hole. <laughs> As uh, we call it. Uh, how is there a way that I could? I, that I could mask my my activity online? Even if you use incognito mode in your browser, like your ISP still sees every single website you've ever visited. Um, but there is a, another option. There's a technology called a VPN that will anonymize all of that. And we recommend ExpressVPN, who is from whom, through whom this entry of the omnibus is brought to you. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter who your ISP is. Uh, your ISP is allowed to sell that information. And if you have a VPN like ExpressVPN, it just reroutes your internet connection through their own secure servers. So your ISP is kept in the dark as to what you're doing online. And it's 
none of their business, frankly. So it encrypts 100% of your data? It is the most powerful encryption available, and it runs seamlessly. Like, you just run it in the background, use the internet normally. You're not even aware that uh, your information is going through this separate layer of servers to keep your identity and activity anonymous. So this works on my computer, but we'll... Will it work on my phone too? Oh, John, you're in luck. It'll work on all your devices, even a smart TV. Whoa, a smart TV. I wonder if it works on my thermostat. I wonder if it works on my <laughs> dumb TV that I still have because I haven't bought a new TV in 20 years. So let me just say, I encourage you to protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Here's an exclusive link for Omnibus listeners only to get an extra three months free if they buy a one-year ExpressVPN package. Just go to, go to expressvpn.com slash omnibus. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash omnibus. Omnibus. Slash omnibus. You got through their product <laughs> name and then you messed up the name of our show. Omnibus. Expressvpn.com slash omnibus to learn more. Within America, there used to be, in ye olde times, so much of what you would have described as free and open space, and kind of un, um, unmitigated space, space that you would call lawless space. I mean, the, the American West... No jurisdiction? No jurisdiction, and no, no sheriff, and no... Uh, no local government. You could just move west from St. Louis or or Indianapolis and be your own person, make your own laws until you got to San Francisco. You can see why somebody from France or Germany watching BBC news stories about Ammon Bundy, uh, you know, just expecting no government intervention on his ranch in Eastern Oregon or Southern Idaho or whatever is it just seemed would be seem totally foreign to them. This, I, this idea that you could just find a space where the government would leave you alone. Because well, there, there are no such spaces in Europe. And Ammon ben, uh, Bundy, um, if he had just kept his livestock on his ranch, nobody would have bothered him. But he was part of that Western delusion that there's all this free land still that's owned by the government. And you should be able, to, as, a, as a free and sovereign American citizen, to be able to graze your cattle on public land for free. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that land is a, although it is a shared resource. Uh, and this it, is somehow different, by the way, from people who, in the cities, sucking on the government welfare. That's right. But that idea, that sense that there should be a place that you could go where you were untrammeled, where you were out of reach of the man. Um, I think there was a there was a great period in America that lasted into the seventies and eighties where uh, where a certain kind of American went to Central America or Southeast Asia um, to you, you know, know I, you know I know people doing it again now that so many of our safety nets and pension systems are gone. Like I know people retiring to Latin America because right. the healthcare will be available and the cost of living is cheap and they just have to shrug and say, well, I guess I'm spending my seventies in this little Costa Rican town. 
And that's very different than it was in the 70s when healthcare wasn't Nobody was going somewhere for subsidized healthcare. You know, they were going to Central America because there wasn't an organized government, uh, at least in whatever, in in whatever little beach town they You're going away from something, not towards something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And now, of course, there is that like, wow, you know, even though Honduras um, maybe is going to be a very, it's going to be very different from living in San Diego. At least they have have, uh, hospitals that aren't going to. Bankrupt me, and my retirement goes a long way. Yeah, but there are there are plenty of people in the United States whose retirement doesn't even allow them to go to Honduras, and a group of of these Americans has coalesced in the the desert of very. The very far southeastern corner of of the state of California, the great state of California, um, and created a community called Slab City. Slab City. Ain't going to play Slab City. Good old Slab City. I need to work on the name. Uh, Well, the name is actually descriptive. There are slabs? There are slabs. I assumed. Otherwise, why would you claim there were? <laughs> During World War II, you know, the, the, the military, the Navy, the, well, the Army, Navy, Air, Air Force, Marines, but during World War II, there was no Air Force. Um, but Army, Navy, and Marines, if you're in the military, you're always looking for some place that you can blow things up where it's not going to disturb the neighbors. Right. And um, it didn't take very long to run out of those places in Virginia. Uh, in Virginia, if you want to blow things up, you have to fly all the way out into the Atlantic Ocean, you know, far away and drop your bombs out there. But there are a lot of places where the where the military wants to see their bombs explode on the ground. And which, which I understand. Sure, I want to see their bombs explode on the ground. I want to see both. Right? So you uh, want to have an option. But you can't do that. You can't do that in Delaware. Uh, the same way that you can, say, for instance, in Nevada. And the American West is full of places, full of gunny, gunnery ranges and uh, explosives ranges and military training areas that, are all, that were all developed sort of around the, uh, the, the rise of military aviation. So large areas uh, – the hundreds of thousands of acres given over in the in the West to uh, to ranges just for testing aircraft, yeah. dropping dropping bombs on things on sagebrush. If you're if you're 500 feet off the ground and flying at Mach one, and you're going to drop a 500 pound bomb, that thing's going to bounce a couple of times before it goes off, and you need. You need a lot of leeway for that thing to bounce and blow up. You want to make sure it's only Gila monsters. Yeah, you're not going to put that thing down between two housing developments. So the West is full of this stuff. And then, of course, when the nukes were uh, Mm -hmm. developed, you needed the entire state of Nevada, with the exception of Winnemucca, Reno, Tahoe, and... Las Vegas. Well, there's nothing else there. So the rest of it is, they're just craters. And you might need New Mexico to turn people into hulks, incredible hulks. Right. But during World War II, way out there in the uh, Sonoran Desert, the Marine Corps built, uh, built a camp called, uh, called Camp Dunlap. And it was within 
range of the uh, the aircraft carriers that were stationed in San Diego. So the airplanes that were flying in and out of San Diego, they could make it over to this uh, the eastern part of the state. And the Marine Corps built a kind of art an artillery range, um, and they poured big flat concrete slabs out there in the desert for their Marine Corps uses, their mysterious Marine Corps purposes. Then they used it throughout the war. And at the end of the war, they kind of transferred it over to the Navy. Six of one half dozen of the, of another Navy doesn't have a lot of use for desert. And over time, well, you'd be surprised about the amount of Navy land that's out in the desert. God, if you if you did an inventory of all the land the Navy owns that you're just like, what? Couldn't they do a trade? Couldn't you, they work out a trade? What are you doing with all this land in Utah, Navy? In this case, they did work out a trade. Or rather, uh, by the early 60s, the Navy realized they, they got nothing going on out here in, in uh, Camp, Camp Dunlap. Uh, and that nothing in the foreseeable future. And so they they did a kind of, they just quit their claim to it. And the land reverted to the state of California. The state of California also uh, didn't have any use for this land, and it just sat fallow. If it was pretty, you'd find something to do with it. I mean, it's pretty if you're a Gila monster. Oh, sure. But, but this- a lot of things are pretty if you're a Gila monster. Mm. Uh, decomposing uh, skunk. Yeah. Lady Gila monster. Sure. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I'm picturing this being pretty brown and dusty and awful. Yeah, and the, the Imperial Valley in California is this is sort of fascinating uh, territory, and we'll cover it in a future episode of the Omnibus. But the Imperial Valley um, has been irrigated for over a hundred years now by by intrepid Californians, some of whom we discussed in our Water Wars episode, mm-hmm. and so there are parts of the Imperial Valley that are lush. Uh, l- lush farmland. Fields, yeah. Um, but really, when when settlers first arrived, it was a sun-baked and below-sea-level wasteland. And that was true of Slab City for a long time before a man by the name of Leonard Knight. When is this? Uh, Leonard Knight arrived in the 80s. Oh. And... Leonard Knight was uh, was someone inspired, uh, inspired by revelation, and his personal revelation and his personal sinner's quest. This was a religious uh, epiphany he had, had. A religious epiphany, and he began to build a structure out of garbage and discarded paint. Called or that he called Salvation Mountain. God does appear to send uh, religious uh, oddballs out to the desert a lot, which God, is which is nice for the rest of us. God does. God also he sent the Mormons there. I guess I shouldn't say us. <laughs> he, uh, God says uh, God said Abraham, kill me a son. Uh, in this case, God said Leonard, go build a mountain out of garbage. Where does he get the garbage? Uh, well, there's a lot of garbage in the world, That's Ken, nice. and people yeah. dump it in the desert. Uh, including God. I do get annoyed. I do get annoyed by that when I see just some dead end road where people are dumping old dryers. Uh, right. Or, 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 uh, or, or young prophets. Um, but garbage is pretty easy to come by. And I think garbage in the seventies and eighties was easier to come by before people 
really fell into the trap of believing that recycling was real. As we learned in the garbage barge entry. Uh, Leonard Knight began to build Salvation Mountain out of uh, old tires and straw and coffee cups and paint. And uh, he worked on it for a long time. And what it is basically is a big mound out in the desert um, that has uh, sort of religious exhortations aphorisms painted on it. Oh, it's not covered in dirt to make it look like a real mountain. It's actually no, got... It's covered in paint. It's to a make mountain it... in the same way that Space Mountain is a mountain. Right. It looks like melted... It looks like you took a bunch of Legos and melted it in fire and then painted uh, apocalyptic Jesus poems in it. So it's art. It is incredible art. Uh, it's actually been declared a folk art site and a national treasure. Oh, Senator, wow. Senator Barbara Boxer uh, actually like um, enshrined it as a national, some kind of national um, art treasure. It uh, is great. I can't tell how tall it is in these pictures. Maybe, it's tall. Yeah. The original, the original Salvation Mountain collapsed oh. uh, because Leonard Knight was not an, a mountain engineer, but he realized... Uh, I think this is true of a lot of religious vi- visionaries that God caused it to collapse because God wanted Leonard Knight to know. In hindsight, it's clear <laughs> that he needed to do a better job. If you'd asked him at the time, <laughs> "Hey, Leonard, is God going to make this thing collapse?" He would say, "Absolutely not." Right. But now that it has, I think we all know. Right. That that's God that was, was God's like, plan. "No, try again." And so the second time Leonard uh, studied engineering, uh, or I guess, I guess <laughs> studied, and, and he. Uh, he can, he made a new mountain, a new Salvation Mountain, out of um, adobe and straw and tires and old windows and car parts and it looks like a big rock candy mountain. Garbage. It is it is a big rock candy mountain. Now I think the main thing that the mountain appears to be made of is paint. Um, he finds all the you know paint is a thing that gets discarded. It's a toxic. I just discarded waste. a ton of paint uh, just for something to do during the pandemic. And it used every bit of kitty litter I could find. Yeah. That, that's what I was. That's how I was kind of drying it up. Kind of instructed. To, uh, that's your new way to dispose it. In the old days, of course, paint was super toxic. It had a lot of lead in it. But Leonard collected donations of paint and just you know got old paint from anywhere he could, and basically painted this mountain and then painted it again and painted it again until he built up layers and layers and layers of colored paint, always with. Uh, with these sayings and and religious iconography, yeah. But, there's there's a big heart with a, a little axiom about Jesus. There's John three sixteen. I can see that's a popular one. John three sixteen. You oh, see that a lot. Huge at football games. Yeah, it's a big one. Not anymore. How come the the virtual fans in the in the sports events today don't have the the Bible verses? Oh, they're uh, they're just so mad at the football players kneeling uh, during the during the <laughs> pledge of allegiance that they they. Forget to hold up their sign. They brought the sign. It's there. They just forget to hold it up. I guess. Uh, it, uh, Salvation Mountain is not just a mountain, though. Uh, there are caverns and places. So I've been there and climbed, clamored. I, I was about to say climbed, but it really you clamor. So you're not. It. You don't have to stay off the art. You can. You oh can no, wander it's, around. It's very Salvation Mountain if you want. Uh, there, uh, at a certain point, Leonard Knight started communicating with the local Navajo, trying to figure out like. If he could get some insights, uh, you know, like spiritual is, insights. Well, maybe, or or maybe architectural ones. He built, <laughs> uh, he built a uh, like kind of a facsimile of a Hogan 
out of old tires and old windows. I guess I admire the multiculturalism. It's pretty fascinating to be in it. It's actually kind of a... There are spaces within Salvation Mountain that feel kind of hallowed. Um, and not just bonkers hallowed, but hallowed. He always intended to live there or live within it. Uh, but uh, during the whole period that he worked there, which was some 30-odd years, uh, he just lived in a shed that was on the back of his pickup truck. And I guess you get attached. And I think he was, he like kept thinking he was going to move into the Hogan just, yeah, stayed in the truck. And eventually, you know, unfortunately he got dementia, but his Salvation Mountain attracted a certain kind of, uh, looky-loo headed by on the highway and it's proximate to the Salton Sea, which, uh, which is another, a future omnibus, which also brings a, a kind of desperate tourist uh, a tourist of the uh, a tourist of the atlas obscura kind looking for um looking for the the weird uh, rather than necessarily the beautiful or interesting salton sea is weird oddly beautiful and interesting uh but once you see salvation mountain i think one of the one of your initial takeaways has to be wow you can just come out here into the desert and build a mountain out of tires and paint. So if that guy can make a mountain, you can do anything here. You can do anything. And it started to attract characters and there's no other way to put it. What did he think about that? Well, I imagine he liked the company. He wasn't, um, he wasn't, I don't think that Leonard was trying to start a church. Yeah, I was, I, think, I was wondering if you wanted followers. I think he just was out there in personal communication with God. And I think he did want people to come, but he wanted them to come to read John 316. Mm. Um, although that's available. Yeah, in, he, I feel like you could just stay in your hotel room yeah, and look that up. That's right. But but maybe seeing it painted on the side of a mountain would, would be the lightning bolt you were looking for. If I would believe in these verses, if only they were larger. Uh-huh. This font size is really <laughs> challenging my faith. <laughs> Ken, we've uh, come up with some exciting T-shirt uh, designs in the last couple of months. What can you tell us about T-shirts going forward? I like the December ones. After years of requests, we have finally decided there should be an omnibus shirt with a mail truck on it. Yay, mail truck shirt! And it's fun. It's got Mr. Zip driving the truck, that kind of nightmare-inducing mm-hmm. uh, representative of the post office's zone improvement plan. And he's having a fun time driving his mail truck on its last legs, and it says omnibus. And then there's a different shirt. About- he's, he's kind of ghost riding, isn't he? He's a little bit out of the truck, like he's only got one arm and and one leg. And he's leaning the out the right side, but that is correct. Yeah, that's right. that's the, that's the right side. His hood is up. It's smoking. He's yeah. He's quite a he's quite a rakish young man. Uh, he's a real daredevil here. Yeah. Huh. And then this is the de Havilland Beaver, right? You talk about the aviation one because I can't remember what this is. It is. It's the it's the de Havilland Beaver from the front end. Um, it's landing on a Alaskan lake with its with its uh, sea pods with its pontoons. That's, that's or sea right. pods, as we call it. That's right. It's a uh, it's it's a float plane, as we say in the in the parlance. Uh, it shows its very distinctive and characteristic radial engine from the front. So there's no mistaking the profile of the, the Havilland Beaver. 
These are some good-looking shirts about some popular omnibus entries. Two new designs every month, so these will be gone at the end of December. Don't miss out. That's right. This ad is this ad has a time limit. You've got what? Two over two weeks, so almost three weeks. Go to omnibusproject.com slash store. You'll always see the links to our two new shirts that our friend Dave has up for us at Mediocrity. You'll also find a link to our T Public store where we have a wide array of stuff with the Omnibus logo on it. Hoodies, uh, what else? Hats, I think. Mugs. Onesies? Phone phone cases. Yeah, onesies, but only in adult sizes. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. If you show up at my house in an Omnibus adult onesie, Yes, you John? Can, you can spend the night. How does that sentence end? Maybe in my guest room, but definitely you can spend the night. Uh, so don't forget, if you're interested in Omnibus gear for a limited time only, head to omnibusproject.com slash store. That's omnibusproject.com slash store. Salvation Mountain is right next to the ruins of old Camp Dunlap. And when California took it over, the Navy had demolished all the buildings and all that was left. No Quonset huts. No, all that was left were the slabs. Um, But people started to show up. And one of the first guys to show up out there was a guy named Container Charlie, who. I'm sure that was not his name. (laughs) Having, well, his name was Charlie Russell. And having. Christened Container Charles. Having. Uh, having hit the sort of the skids, or the or rather, not the skids, but the end of the road, Container Charlie still had stuff. He still had life left in him, but he just didn't see a future for himself in the city anymore. And he put all his stuff in a container, shipping container, and took it out to... Salvation Mountain out to a slab. He picked a, a slab that suited him, surrounded by scrub grass. And this is one of the slabs that the buildings used to be on. It was just yeah. a foundation, uh, Gila monsters and whatnot. And he, uh, his stuff in his container, he plopped it down and said, uh, "This is mine. I live here now." And Container Charlie, I think probably the next person that stopped by Salvation Mountain and then saw Container Charlie next door. Cooking a Gila monster and living his best living life. Living a good life. Um, it wasn't long before people started to congregate there. Because there's more slabs. More slabs, more more room, and more, um, I think, perceived lack of any jurisdiction. There is a town very close by. Uh, it's the town of Nyland, California. Which is perhaps annoyed by all this. Well, Nyland's only three miles away, but Nyland, and this is, you know, the kind of classic story. Nyland is a largely Latino uh, community huh. uh, or Hispan- Hispanic community uh, of people that also have fallen f- on fairly hard times as the agriculture in um, in the Imperial Valley has gradually dried up because of the of the incredible demand on all that Colorado River water so that it, used to, so once lush farmland now, right, just leftover people. So Nyland, Nyland wasn't thriving either, but they were not. Um, they weren't looking to live off the grid. I mean, Ny- the people living in Nyland hoped that the electricity would stay on and the police would come when they called. But as more and more people started to arrive at Slab City, uh, and and took on the name Slab City. It became a kind of 
uh, a place the like of which there are very few in the United States. Maybe Slab City is the last and increasingly few places like it in the world where although the state of California and the California State Highway Patrol like um, ostensibly have jurisdiction there, uh, it's pretty far out and nobody really takes responsibility for it. And it is... Is there no power or utilities or... There, uh, there are no utilities of any kind. No water, no power, no sewer. Um, it's just slabs of concrete kind of half buried under tumbleweeds. I mean, if there's hundreds of people there, you do start to see the limitations pretty soon of living in a place with nothing but slabs of concrete and no water, power, or sewer. Well, so little by little, there ha- the community has grown in size so that it, it now encompasses hundreds and hundreds of people. I think um, more than 400, well, wait a minute, more than 4,000 people. Wait, what, right now? Live in Slab City in the winter. Now, in the summer, it should be noted that Slab City uh, routinely is 120 degrees. I bet those slabs feel pretty hot. It's pretty hot in Slab City in the summer. Uh, and there is some sort of, there are scrubby trees there. I mean, there is some shade to be had, if it could be called that. But the population really swells in winter. It makes sense. That's a, you know, in the summer, that's a time when you have plenty of other, plenty of other options of places in America where you can kind of live this, uh, this in this demimond world. In the winter, you have a lot fewer options. Well, and what it attracted in its, you know, in, in its uh, period of, of fast growth were snowbirds. Uh, but snowbirds, you know, RV culture people, um, boomers who were retiring and wanted to stretch their dollar, people that didn't want the government in their business. I people, bet it's a certain kind of retiree. Your yeah. average retiree is just going to go to KOA or something. It sure is a certain kind. And, you know, you see, uh, this is another thing about refocusing your eyes in urban environments you start to notice, oh, there are a lot of people living in RVs in any major metropolitan city. And there are RVs that are really patched together with, with <laughs> uh, chewing gum and bailing wire. Oh, I see a lot of them here. And, um, and those RVs represent a, a completely separate subculture. And it's a subculture that I think considers itself at one remove from the homeless population. They wouldn't describe themselves as homeless because they aren't. They've got a system. Yeah, they're turtles. And um, as long as they can keep those RVs running, they're in good shape. I think probably there are a lot of RVs in Seattle in the summer that maybe head down to Slab City. Hmm. It's um, it's a kind of burning man except for uh, – not for like rich kids on Instagram. And – what, what ends up happening is, you're right, it is a, a certain type of person, and it does attract a kind of art collective mentality as part of the way it self-governs. So Salvation Mountain was the spark that brought outsider artists to think of this as a place where they could also create out of trash. <laughs> because there's a lot of trash in Slab City, and there's a lot of art made out of trash. Uh, because you're responsible for bringing all your stuff, I mean, all your resources, everything you 
you live on, your water and your food, you have to bring yourself. And I'm sure these people are not super vigilant about trucking it out of there. They really aren't. And there's... So you need uh, something to do with the litter. There's garbage everywhere. You want to make art. It's perfect. You want to make art. So they're, they're very, it's very artistic. So driving through Slab City, and I was there most recently, oh boy, it's probably been about 10 years. You didn't stay? You were just kind of passing through to look check it out? Uh, yeah, I mean, I stayed a day. Hmm. The the slabbies is that what they say? Yeah, regard slabrador retrievers. <laughs> regard you know people that aren't slabbies as normies, and they actually say they use the word normie, um, which I guess has yeah that's now a popular term for anybody that's not in your weird whatever your little thing is here, here within om- the omnibus uh, bunker. We call everybody that's not in the bunker normies. I feel like in the world, it's just somebody who doesn't watch the same anime as you or yeah, something. that's right. But here it means something a little more meaningful. Driving through Slab City, you cannot but feel a palpable menace uh, that you would feel anywhere where lawlessness was clearly the rule of order. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, does Slab City have some of the ills that, uh, you know, Seattle's most recent attempt to have some kind of free place like this began as kind of a fun festival arts collective That's right. and ended in a couple murders. Slab City feels like you're in a plasmatics video. <laughs> um, it's definitely like water world in the desert, but there is a, there isn't an ethos of self-government, um, which is understandable, right? You can't have 4,000 people congregate in the desert and and literally have no mores. So it keeps things running? They, the, they try to solve their own problems? They do. I mean, there's a little element of... Um, they, they're not solving problems the same way that we would. There's a kind of vigilantism that happens. Um, there's a... There, uh, one of the rules of Slab City is that anything that is abandoned for more than five days becomes free game. I wish that would happen in our house. So if you head down to Nyland uh, to get water and decide to, you know, and you and you call your daughter and she says, "Come home," um, you know the there's a the, one of the chickens is having a breech birth or whatever, and you go home for a week and you come back, your abandoned school bus that was full of all the hubcaps that you'd been collecting to build, uh, like a Michelin man. Um, there, that's gone. It's been scavenged by the other, um, by the other members of, or the other residents. And that's within the law of Slab City. I'm going to start some kind of Slab City task rabbit where I, <laughs> where I fill in for people who are on the verge of, uh, losing their, having their stuff cannibalized. There's also a tradition there that if the community starts to agree that any one inhabitant of Slab City has just outstayed their welcome, um, which probably happens not infrequently uh, where somebody just they, is. You can murder them. Well, what they have is what's called a burnout, which means that everybody just gathers around and burns down your place. Or do you, do you, are you allowed to exit before? Yeah, I think so. But You're like encouraged. most of the people living in Slab City are living in an RV, an old school bus, their car uh, that they've built a kind of lean to next to. I mean, you know, it's all, uh, it's all put together housing. It's a tin city, basically. You know, um, it's housing made out of scrap. So to burn someone's place down is, yeah, it's a it's a pretty strong message. 
Um, As there would be in any community. <laughs> but when you drive around Slab City, you see burned out cars and RVs. Like, you know, if you've ever seen an RV on the side of the road that caught fire and burned, yeah. it's pretty catastrophic. And that, that's a palpable reminder of, uh, you know, to keep your, to keep in line, I yeah, guess. Yeah, keep your, keep your uh, P's and Q's zipped. Um, as, but, as the as the saying, saying goes, goes we all say. But there, you know, there are compounds that people have built out of found barbed wire and metal where you kind of can't see in little little corrals, enclaves. I mean, it's it's truly a testament to the ingenuity of the scavenger. Do people have like generators and TV mm-hmm. antennas and lights and it's not like some throwback. Uh, uh, you know, pioneer community. No, there are lights in Slab City, not powered by any any communal grid, but pe- people with generators, people, uh, there's a lot of solar power oh. because oh, yeah. it's, you know, really hot and it's in the desert. So people, uh, people do have electricity, although driving, and I was there at night uh, as well. I mean, I stayed unto the night until, until into the night. And it's even spookier at night because it's all low wattage electricity. So all the lights are kind of have a yellow, yellow glow, except for the ones that are like halogen bright. And so driving around, you just, you really do feel like, um, like you're in a Christmas village of Of the damned. Yeah. Christmas village (laughs) of the damned. Uh, but it's a, it has become, in a way, its own art installation. Uh, there's an area there which, um, which was start. Well, I mean, there, so it, so it's developed m- many different neighborhoods. Um, there's an area called East Jesus, uh, and this is part of Charlie Russell's domain. East Jesus is. Uh, it's not a religious reference. It's, it's oh, it's not. It's kind of equivalent. to... It really sounds like the kind of thing you say if you drop a hammer on your toe. East Jesus. No, it's it, it's something more akin to uh, BFE, where you say I'm headed out to East Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like um, it just means the middle of nowhere. But East Jesus has become a whole sort of enough artists working collectively that it um, it's like a museum. It's become an art installation in and of itself, the whole of it. Slab City has suburbs now. Yeah. Unfortunately, the state of California has recently been entertaining offers from petroleum companies to sell the land. Is there oil? There's not oil as far as I know, but petroleum companies need places to just make pollution out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just to get a tax write off. Talk about uh, just a place to dump trash. Uh, I'm not sure whether the, whether petroleum companies are actually exploring for oil there or whether they just want to uh, dump their oil in the canals. But once the ownership of East Jesus was threatened, some of the slabbies have been trying to cobble together some money enough to buy Slab City from the state of California. Because whatever the value of Slab City is, it's pennies on the acre. I mean, if it wasn't yeah. Slab, if you went across the street from Slab City, you could buy 600 acres for, 
you know, for the cost of one burned out car, probably. So it's a deal. But unfortunately, now within Slab City, there's a little bit of a generational conflict, kind of like anywhere else in America, kind of like anywhere else but the omnibus bunker. The young people in Slab City who tend to be more of a kind of, um, you know, fringe outsider people to begin with, not, not people that worked their whole lives and now live in an RV and want to be somewhere where there's no property tax, but, you know, a younger group that wants to live in an, in an arts world off grid, a kind of into the wild type and Salvation Mountain actually appears in the movie into the wild. Oh, really? It's one of the places that the protagonist kid stops by on his way to dying of scurvy. Um, but the younger people feel like the boomers who have lived in slab city for 30 years are going to buy slab city for a dollar from the state of California and then impose some kind of boomer HOA. Yeah. Like a boomer <laughs> law on it. And the, and the it's like ape law <laughs> boomer law has spoken. You must have wall to wall carpeting. And the youth are going to get, uh, once again, disenfranchised by, by the greedy, graspy, Really, really, if you think Slab City has uh, sold out, then uh, there's really no hope for you. Right. It's uh, If your expectation is that even Slab City is now too corporate, I don't know what to tell you. If this is the last free place and and the and the boomers get in there and charge you and a start, dollar. Start playing Steely Dan music while uh, you're trying to you're just trying to enjoy the stars. Yeah, where are you gonna go? Honduras. And that concludes Slab City, entry 1170.IS3501, certificate number 33204, in the omnibus. As long as we are not off the grid, and as long as the, uh, well, as long as the telecommunications grid survives, uh, John and I are dedicated to uh, leaving our personal footprints on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., much that we hate it. You can find us at Omnibus Project. Uh, or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick individually. You know, we're speaking to a future audience that probably largely lives in camps like this. Mm-hmm. And are, maybe they're like, what a great idea. We could take all these tires and make Salvation Mountain. Mm-hmm. Why haven't you painted your tires, painted your mountain of tires, futurelings? If your tires are just sitting in the middle of the desert attracting scorpions, uh, what are you doing? You need to you need to paint some <laughs> paint some pastel Bible verses on them, please. That's right. John 316. Look it up. It'll, 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 it's great. Uh, you can, uh, speaking of Facebook, there's the Futurelings uh, fan group that we appreciate. Everything else on Facebook is awful, so please limit yourself to that one page. They also have a subreddit and a Discord, I'm sure. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with your own off-the-grid stories. Uh, if you're off the grid right now, you can't email us and, uh, that's just one of the compromises you've chosen in that lifestyle. I'm sorry. Right, right, right. You can uh, send us physical objects. I have this large envelope addressed to you, John, and I said I I wasn't going to open it until now. Oh, what is it? I don't know. It's a large, it's a large sort of envelope box. A large cylindrical thing. Is it a baby Yoda? It is an... Oh. 
uh, Stanley Boeing military airplanes thermos that's about the size of a of a smart car. Whoa, look at that. Oh, wow. Look at the bottom of it. Oh, man. It's a old Stanley thermos. I'm now stenciled Boeing military airplanes. Do you think I'm enough of a dad that I can now say it's a beauty about things? That's a beauty, isn't it? It's a boy. It's a beauty. Now, how, how, we know this is for me. Uh, and not for not, not a thermos for us to share. Uh, Made in y- Nashville, Tennessee. You're welcome to share, but it's from uh, a listener named A.E. from Richmond. Oh, Thank wait, you, A.E. There is a note. Here, I'll pass you Look the note. Look at it here. Look at this gorgeous, gorgeous thing. What is, I bet you it smells like bourbon. I'm no, it s- doesn't smell like bourbon. Don't impugn A.E.'s potential substance issues. Let's see. I uh, just landed right behind your laptop. Uh, uh, your hand's right on it. It's in a brown envelope. All right. <clears throat> it does say JR on it. Let me open it here. Da, 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 da. Oh, it's well sealed in this thing. But come on, come on, come on, come on. I'm trying to open this in real time. You know, this is great radio when someone's opening a letter. Make more ripping sounds. There we go. All right, it's that's for the ASMR. It says here, dear John, enjoy and use this thermos in good health. Thanks for the many years of sharing your stories. Oh, and art with us. Use this two foot tall thermos. We are better for it, Alan Rogers. And it seems like it probably maybe contains like some kind of nuclear core, like a like nuclear fissionable material. Well, you know, this is a very well preserved thermos, but also has been used. And I think by his father or grandfather, it's got a handle like an old lunchbox, which I love. It does. And it, you know, it shows some wear, but it's well cared for. I think I'm going to put many delicious hot and cold beverages in this thermos. I also got a note from a listener in Nolansville, Tennessee. I maybe starts with a T. I can't know if I, I don't know if I can read it. He sent me a, it's typed. (laughs) What do you mean? You can't read it. So where the name should appear, it says your name, which is either some kind of postmodern trick or he just forgot to replace the template. I see. Okay. Uh, go on. The signature starts with a T. He sent me a, uh, a, a flattened souvenir penny that he made in somewhere in San Francisco. It's got a trolley and a lamp post on it. Uh, and he says, if you look at the back very closely, you can see it has a distorted Abraham Lincoln head, kind of in the style of a Salvador Dali canvas. Proof, so he says, that... Penny smashing is pe- still a thing. Penny smashing is actually smashing the penny, and not as I have often posited, <laughs> replacing it with a counterfeit substitute oval penny. What is what is keeping them from substituting just this smashed Lincoln face Exactly. One? Yeah. If you're if you're gonna stock your machine with these kind of copper ellipses, it's it's no additional trouble to put kind of a distorted Lincoln head on the back of it. Sure. Let me see that. How do you? He sent us uh, the penny oh, and yeah, also several is, photographs of the penny. This is ca- completely fo- faked. This is faked by Q. Yeah, we don't believe this for a second, TD. If that is your real name. Uh, so yeah, feel free to send your own, uh, oddities if you like to PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five. Um, the really the most meaningful way to support the show, uh, is to do so with our Patreon. Um, the show is now almost entirely supported 
by the benevolence and largesse of listeners like you. If currency still exists in your era, uh, you can become part of the supporter community at patreon.com slash omnibusproject and enjoy all the benefits that come with that, including uh, a monthly uh, addenda episode. And that's, that's like the lowest tier. An extra monthly omnibus is the least of the things you can get by becoming a Patreon donor, which is very exciting. If you've thought about it for a while, this is the time. This is the season of giving. Please, uh, if your budget allows, go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and let John know you care. God bless us, everyone. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or how long it was before Ken had to forsake his internet-connected thermostat. And live on a concrete slab with the rest of you. That's right. Covered with the, covered with the, <laughs> with paint <laughs> and Bible verses. I already know the Bible verses. I'm ready to go. We hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear may never come, and we continue to eat our chocolate chip cookies in suburban bliss. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.